Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast. So our guest today certainly needs no introduction except simply to say it gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along Joint Force Minister Michelle O'Neill. How are you Michelle? I'm very good now, great to be back on the podcast. Excellent to have you. It only took us what about six months trying to set this up. (laughs) (laughs) We got there in the end, that's the most important thing. (laughs) We did indeed. Michelle, you kindly invited me along to your very impressive new um, complex, I suppose is the word to call it here in Cookstown today. Um, How long has this been open? So we just got this office, it's myself and Francine Lloyd, the MP for the constituency, um, just got the office just prior to COVID hitting, so we haven't had a chance to have a proper launch of it yet, but it's right in the heart of Cookstown, right in the heart of the constituency. So uh, we'll be opening our doors again to the public as soon as we possibly can. And and thank goodness after what has been a very, very tough year, but a great space. And the, it's for us, it's about being available to the public and the constituency. And hopefully people have a chance to, to come in and knock the door and talk to us. Mm-hmm. I suppose Cookstown's in the centre of Madulster. And as we all know, Madulster, aptly named, is in the centre of the north. So um, you're available to people from all roads and directions. Absolutely. And of course, Madulster is the centre of the world. <laughs> <laughs> You'd expect me to say that. Me, me or you wouldn't be biased, would we? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, um, I appreciate your time is very precious, uh, particularly. Um, just want to put a, a timestamp on this podcast. Today is Friday the 28th of um, May. So we'll be releasing this podcast on Monday the 31st. So um, just to give our listeners um, a wee idea of what we're talking about here. I've seen this morning that Tracy McGee, uh, UTV, tweeted, and I quote, Arlene Foster says, if Edwin Poots replaces her ministerial team next Tuesday, as expected, she will resign as First Minister. I suppose what position, Michelle, will that put you in Sinn Féin, if that happens? Well, obviously, it speeds things along in terms of Arlene's departure and then a new uh, replacement from the DUP being put in place. Um, so it remains to be seen yet what's going to happen there, if Arlene's going to go on Tuesday or if it will be um, as she had originally planned, which was after or was certainly towards the end of June. Um, regardless of who comes in, uh, regardless of who the DUP appoint, um, the politics are the same, the, the setup's the same, power sharing is the same. Uh, the only way that the Assembly and the Executive works is whenever the political parties work together. Um, so whoever comes into post will have to work alongside myself as, as joint head of government. Um, whoever comes into post will have to work with all the other parties around the executive table. There are five of us there. Uh, it's a challenging job at the best of times. Um, so whoever comes in, they're just going to have to, to fit in with all of that and make the politics work. Mm-hmm. If you don't get a commitment, even privately, from the DUP that they'll fully implement all aspects of the new decade, new approach deal. Technically, Sinn Féin could refuse to nominate a joint force minister. Um, and I suppose what I'm getting at here is that, you know, would it be fair, like any business deal, um, that you could put pressure on for the implementation of the Irish Language Act here? Or would you not do such a thing? Well, political commitments were made. I mean, we were three years in a hiatus and it was uh, the, the Irish Language Act as part of the Language and Culture Bills was negotiated. All political parties signed up to it and it's now time to have it implemented. Yes, we've been a bit sidetracked with COVID and dealing with all of that, but now's the time to get back to delivery and all these things. And um, whoever comes in, um, Edmund Poots is now in place as the leader of the DUP. If it's himself or someone else is coming in as their nominee for First Minister, they must deliver and let me be very clear to um, the listeners there will be an Irish Language Act um, the, the DUP cannot hold back change this is something that's going to happen um, and 
you know, at the end of the day, politics has to deliver and political commitments that we're signed up to must be delivered upon. Michelle, am I right in saying it's not actually an Irish language act? It's a language act which incorporates Ulster Scots and everything as a protection of rights it's, for all languages. So it's not solely Irish language. There are um, three three parts to it, um, if you like. Um, it's the, called the Language and Culture Bill. So there are mm-hmm. three separate pieces of legislation that would move um, in tandem in, through their process, through the Assembly. And, you know, no one has anything to fear from what's being proposed um, these are commitments that modest commitments, but they do an awful lot in terms of demonstrating respect for Irish national identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really important. That hasn't been the case, as we know, uh, over the past, and that needs to change. So these commitments must be honoured. Um, I am there to do business with everybody else, but it must be on that basis of respect for each other and our identities. And then let's get, you know, get, get things on an even key because the public want to hear us talking about weightiness. They want mm-hmm. us to hear about <laughs> solutions to the fact that Indeed. the health service is in crisis and COVID has certainly shone a light on all of that. So um, back to the language piece. I mean, there's nothing to fear from an Irish Language Act. It actually makes our society an even more inclusive one. One of the accusations that your opponent would level at Sinn Féin is I would say that Sinn Féin has used the Irish language as a political football. But on the other hand, when you see activists like Linda Irvine coming from East Belfast, staunchly unionist tradition, um, advocating and promoting and being a champion of the Irish Language Act. And Linda um, has, I was going to use the word, turned a lot of her own community onto Irish language. But, you know, Linda does it in such a, a thoughtful manner where she goes back and traces the roots of the Irish language and shows that, it's in all of our DNA here. It's not exclusively owned by anyone. A hundred percent. I mean, it does belong to us all. It is our uh, culture. It is, you know, it's not something that Sinn Féin ever claimed to own. It's something that, you know, should be cherished widely by everybody. And as I say, this thing about, you know, having legislation around Irish language that in any way that would, you know, threaten somebody's Britishness is just a nonsense. I mean, you know, I think, unfortunately, the issue becomes a political football because it's being denied um, mm. as opposed to because people want to promote it mm-hmm. um, you know the sky will not fall in no. when, we, when we have the Irish Language Act and just again to say we will have it um, but I think that uh, what we need to see now is just it needs to be implemented let's get on with it let's put it through the assembly as all political parties signed up to and and, get, and as I said get on with dealing with everything else that we need to do with also okay I appreciate um, my next question you're not in this party um, but I suppose I'm looking your opinion what and under God is happening to the DUP? Well, they certainly certainly seem to be in somewhat of a chaos. I mean, it's not for me to speculate. I don't know. You you know you don't know all you see what you see in the media. Um, but certainly they seem to be in some um turmoil. Obviously, Arlene's departure, um, the abrupt nature in which the way in which it came, the the harsh nature in the way in which it came. The, also, the letter that she hasn't seen yet. The letter that she hasn't seen yet. Um, but I suppose that's for them to work out. Um, as I said, I think that my, my concern is that uh, whoever comes in as the DUP nomination for joint head of government, uh, they need to do so on the basis that they will be working with myself and with the other political parties and on the basis of um, equality and respect for each other and on the basis of political agreements that, that must be delivered upon. Um, so they'll have to work it out for themselves, but um, we are there to do a job and we must work all aspects of the political institutions, that's the North South, the East West and the Assembly and Executive itself. Mm-hmm. Describe your working relationship with Arlene Poster, please, Michelle. I'd say we've had a fairly constructive um, working relationship. Of course, it's like any other relationship in life. You have good days and you have bad days. Um, certainly, uh, that's been the case. Uh, we've, we've 
come through three years, obviously, of negotiations. We were li literally just in to the executive and took up our posts whenever COVID hit us within a short number of weeks. So it's been certainly very challenging, but um, I think that we've worked relatively well together over the course of the last Have you noticed a change in Arlene's, dare I say, attitude or uh, demeanour since she was ousted from her office? Well, I would say that, uh, of course, political leadership is a very challenging job. And when you're trying to bring your party with you, that isn't always easy. Um, so I would imagine, and certainly my observations would be that whenever you're uh, relieved of that responsibility, you certainly feel a lot more liberated. And that seems to be the, the, the approach that Arlene seems to be taking now. Mm -hmm. I suppose on a personal level, Michelle, uh, yourself and Arlene are both female. You're both mothers. You're both leaders of your respective parties. What else, on a human level, do you think you had in common? Well, I mean, we certainly we share those things. We share that we represent rural constituencies, so we're very much two people who were looking out for west of the ban and what we can do there, um, which I think is important. I think that's very true. You know, just when you mention that, because everything, like like I suppose in all countries, you know, everything's situated towards Dublin and Belfast and the big cities. But you're right, Fermanagh and Mid-Ulster traditionally have been kind of ignored. Yeah, so I think it's the, the west of the band, we've, we've, we've known that um, pattern, infrastructure investment, you know, trying to foreign direct investment, trying to bring all those things in. Um, we haven't had our fair share of, of investment, so that was something that we were both passionate about mm. wanting to change. Um, but clearly now that that relationship's coming to an end as Arlene moves on to do what she does um, next. And I want to wish her the very best and her family the very best. I think it's been a very hugely challenging time for her, no doubt. Um, and politics isn't easy. And, you know, for you have to have some empathy, even if you're very different politically and your outlook in life. Mm -hmm. You have to always have empathy on a personal level for anybody going through a trying time. I congratulate Arlene on her victory in the courts this week. Um, particularly around, you know, she can afford to put her feet up. I think. Well, I think I think for me, <laughs> even more so than the monetary thing, I think it's more about the fact that people think that it's fine to say what they wish about those of us, particularly women, Absolutely. in public life, and people think they can say what they want whenever yeah. they want. Yeah. I think this is the only way in which you should start to send a strong message to say that's not the case, and you're not, you can't um, do that. So I think that's a win for for all women. It's a win for life. society. For society, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I echo that, by the way, Michelle. Um, recently, and I suppose very publicly, two Sinn Féin MLAs in Derry, namely being Martina Anderson and Karen Mullen, have been asked to consider their positions. Was the terminology that was used? This follows on from the parties. I suppose there's no other way of putting it. Very disappointing results in losing the Westminster seat in 2019. What has caused these issues? And with next year's Assembly election in mind, what will you do to make sure trust in Sinn Féin and Derry is rebuilt? Well, I'll, start at the, I'll start at the end. I'm very confident that we can rebuild that trust and we can regain the support of the people of the Foyle constituency. Um, I'd also say that both Martina and Karen are two you know, first-class um, uh, representatives for the party and always have been. And But first and foremost, they're activists and they've always worked really hard to build the party and no doubt will have a, a role in, in that into the future. But we have had setbacks in, in FOIL, um, a number of setbacks electorally, and we needed to do something about that. Um, so the party set up a review. We did look at our electoral performance. We looked at you know, how things have went wrong. And then we looked at the fact that we need to take action and to rebuild. Um, so the party is now all focused very much on um, the, the assembly election, the upcoming assembly election. 
and all efforts will be made to to go out and to engage with our own support base but the wider and that the, the wider electorate in foil so I'm, I'm confident actually about the future and i hope that the people of foil will also have confidence in the party and that we are making efforts to say that we hear them and that we're we're doing something about it you said martina and karen are first class activists i suppose why sideline them so they weren't sidelined um i mean obviously the the party in Derry said that we needed change and change then was what we said about bringing so whenever you you do your review work you can't you have to come at it holistically you have to say well if things are broken we need to fix them mm-hmm. and um so i think that in terms of the change you needed to demonstrate change and that's what the public will now will now see so uh, both both uh karen and martina as i said you know, they're great girls they are my friends and you know and they will be into the future um but i think that they both realized even also that that the change was required and just to finally put this subject to bed Will Karen and Martina both be working behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, uh, coming into the next assembly elections? So they will always be activists and, and no doubt will be playing their part in both the FOIA constituency and whatever else is, is required of them. Um, they've always um, been there and they will always be there. Very good. Michelle, the new Dacket New Approach Agreement in January 2020, which ultimately restored the Stormont Executive, what's your assessment of it to date? So um, I, I suppose that the, the agreement itself, whenever it was struck back in January, we really only had six weeks um, in the institutions before COVID hit. So, so many things got sidetracked. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt that the British government have taken, in terms of their commitments, they have implemented, for example, flag plan days. They have implemented the Veterans Commissioner. Um, that looks like a very one-sided pitch in, in, in anybody's assessment. Um, but uh, those things are, are beyond our uh, gift there within the Westminster gift. But yes, the, 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 the commitments that were made, of which there were many, have not been um, delivered at this point, but they still have to be, and they will be. And now I think as we sort of move away from the, the, the lockdown and, and from COVID, we're now very much refocused on delivery of, of the new decade, new approach commitments. I'm glad this morning, actually, that we have, the announcement from the um from the NIO actually from Brandon Lewis around um support for um the broadcast fund for the Irish language sector, which is obviously another um NDNA commitment and a welcome one. So um I just think it's it's now very much a refocused effort to get these things all over the line, including the language and culture bills, including the waiting list plan, including everything else that was committed to in that in that agreement. How did you first hear about and what's your opinion on this whole, I suppose, issue about no prosecutions and drawing a line on the sand and all this? And, and obviously that has come from Brant Lewis and Boris Johnson. What, you know, what, what ultimately is going to be the final outcome on this? That's yet to be seen, but the, the British government seem hell-bent on doing whatever they can to protect uh, their narrative, to protect what they did here in Ireland, to protect their dirty war in Ireland. Uh, they seem hell-bent in regardless of the impact on the victims here um, that they are going to set out to effectively provide an amnesty for uh, British uh, serving whether you, whatever role you played in, mm-hmm. in, in the British uh, end. So I think that uh, this is something that goes right. It's a, it's a kick in the teeth again for victims. It goes completely against the grain of what was agreed in the Stormont House Agreement, which did have cross-party support, which did have two governments' support. Um, 
But this, I think, has been common for some time. Uh, Brandon Lewis first muted it back in March, I think, of, of um, last year. And now they appear to be moving forward with legislation that's going to provide an amnesty. How does that help reconcile our people? Um, it, it just is, it, it's further demonstration that the British government don't uh, give one damn about what happens here in terms of uh, the impact on victims and to have no consciousness at all around the fact that we are a society coming from conflict mm. and there is so much healing that's required and covering up what happened is not going to provide that healing. I think for me it's important for people <clears throat> regardless of what political persuasion they're from to remember this is for all victims mm -hmm. not just Republican victims you know there's loyalists that, that their families uh, and unionists that their families got murdered too. Mm. And like everybody has a right for a proper investigation. It's not just a Republican demand this. And I think sometimes, you know, that can get lost in people. It's us against them or whatever. Mm. And, you know, as you rightfully put it, everybody has a right, regardless of um, who or what they are. Yeah, and I think the British government seem to be, um, as I said, I, I described it as hell-bent, but that, because that seems to be where, where mm. they're headed. Um, but they are denying families the access um, to justice. Mm -hmm. um, they're denying Article 2 compliant investigations. And, you know, this goes right to the heart of who we are as a society. And so many people were hurt. And we need to give families what they need. It doesn't matter who hurt you. But lots of hurt was caused. And families tell us time and time again that they need access to truth. And they need to have the choice to, to have access to justice also. Mm -hmm. Michelle, after the next assembly election, which is what, slightly less than a year away or in around a year away, do you see yourself as becoming first minister? Now, I appreciate that's down to the people, not you. But if so, what message will that send to the British Secretary of State that the time has eventually come to set a date for a border poll? Well, even, be, even before the election, I would say now is the time for them to set the date. Um, things are certainly moving in that direction. And I think there's a realisation now right across um, society that it's a matter of when, not a, you know, not if. So I think that um, clearly for this, the next scheduled assembly election is next May, um, if it's not sooner. Um, but certainly uh, we will go to the electorate and we'll ask for their support for the largest possible mandate that we can achieve. Um, because we want to affect change, because we want to bring about the more you know political strength we have the more departments we have the more progressive change we can make the more we can support uh, the, the public and whether that's you know right across health jobs housing uh, education um but i think that certainly uh if if we were to come back in the position of as the largest party and to take up the the joint role um mm -hmm. i am currently the joint head of government mm -hmm. um but to take up that role of course it adds to the the course that that now is the time to plan for Irish unity and now is the time to set a date and to let's work towards it to build the arguments to build the case and certainly I'm very excited by the fact this is a conversation is so underway right now. Are you encouraged Michelle by the likes of um, Neil Richmond, Fina Gale and Jim O'Callaghan, Fina Foyle both who we had on our podcast quite recently adding their voice to a growing conversation around planning for constitutional change. And I guess I'm asking this question because, unfortunately, as we all know, Irish government and members of it traditionally certainly weren't advocating publicly, um, you know, the whole unity talk. Yeah. I, I, I think we should never be childish. I think we should always welcome everybody coming onto the platform of, 
of encouraging the conversation around unity and offering up their perspective because that's what ultimately what it's going to be i mean this is a chance there we need to ensure that what happened with brexit doesn't happen to to us we need we need to build the case around what does the irish national health service look like you know what does education look like we need to build the 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 arguments for um the economic benefit that that uniting the country can bring we need to have the conversation so I absolutely welcome more and more people onto the onto the onto the platform to have the debate. It's really healthy to have the debate. Like for, let's plan something. For me, it's very encouraging to see members of Fianna Fáil, members of Fianna Gael, obviously yourself and the party Sinn Féin, the SDLP, you know, civic society like Ireland's Future, ourselves and Shared Ireland. Um, you know, like it's it's so refreshing. I'm fifty years of age, and you know, I honestly four years ago never thought. I would have seen this chorus mm. and everybody's coming at it from an inclusive point of view mm-hmm. because nobody wants to repeat the mistakes of the past mm. on all sides. So for me, like, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's wow. It really it is. is. It is. And, and you were saying even four years ago, like, could you imagine like five, six, seven, eight years ago, you'd never would imagine we'd be where we are today. And Brexit has been a big catalyst. It has, it has been a big game changer. And particularly because um, people are now faced with a kind of stark reality you know, the choice between inward looking Brexit Britain or the outward looking inclusive mm-hmm. Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um so I think um there's a responsibility in all of us to have the debate, to have the conversation and you know to allay the fears that are there. Um mm-hmm. because clearly there are people who will be fearful. Um we need to make sure that people understand that particularly those of a British identity, that mm-hmm. there is no threat to their identity and we have to find ways and I certainly would make a commitment that uh, and that that we need to find a way to ensure that those of a British identity know that that's going to be cherished in the new mm-hmm. and agreed Ireland. There's something better for us all in the future mm-hmm. because partitions failed everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're a segregated society because of partition. Of course, so. um, our education system is a is a yeah. direct result of um, partition. Um, so when you look at all the ills in society and and the sectarianism that exists today, um, you know. 20 you know 20 what is 23 years after the good friday agreement mm-hmm. you know that that's that's such an indictment on where you know from where we are mm-hmm. i when, just when, think there's something better for when us. you say we're a failed society like effectively uh robin swan more or less said that without using them words a couple of days ago when he said the health system basically isn't fit for a purpose you know yeah and our health service is it's on his knees our health service our health care workers are stretched to the absolute limit there's been a failure to invest in the health service because of Tory austerity the Tories have starved us of money to invest in the health service for well over 10 years um so imagine having an Irish national health service free at the point of delivery across the whole of the island mm-hmm. that's to me that's the price that's yeah. a big big price for for many many people and I know sometimes people in the north look to the south and they think oh you have to pay to see your GP well I'd be saying I'd be making the case uh in the new and agreed Ireland Irish National Health Service has to be one of the big, big, uh, big issues that, that we address straight on. I think from all conversations I've had, and um, that's the number one key issue here, mm-hmm. is um, my health, my children's, mm-hmm. future's health, and grandchildren. Yeah. yeah, particularly when you come to my age myself. <laughs> um, but, but I'm you're, not too far behind you. <laughs> but you're right, you know, <clears throat> no longer can this be about us. We have to start thinking about our next generations here. And let's face it, like your health is your wealth, as I say. And it doesn't segregate, it doesn't discriminate. Um, Arlene Poster, uh, Edwin Poots, uh, me, you, or who, anybody living on this island, we're all 
um, susceptible to, you know, taking ill at times. Mm. And like, if we need to wait, what, up to five years maybe to get a, a consultation, mm-hmm. um, like, wow, that's simply no. not acceptable. No, it's really not. The waiting lists are absolutely atrocious. And we didn't just arrive here because of COVID. No. This has been in the making for some yeah. time. Um, we need to employ more nurses. We need to, you know, really shore up our health service. We need to transform how we deliver care. I want to hear us talking about how you can live longer. Mm. And because there's still a postcode lottery when it comes think, to health. I think there's stats out there at the moment that somebody born in, in the 26 counties as opposed to the six has got, what, something like a two or three year more life expectancy or something like that. Right, okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. I, yeah. know, I know within the north there's a particular issue with it if you live in West Belfast, for example, compared to the Lisburn Road, mm. there's a 10 year difference. What? 10 year difference? Yeah. So it's just incredible. Mm, interesting. Uh, getting back to, I suppose, you know, different voices chip, chipping into this whole conversation around um, a new shared Ireland. What's your assessment of the Irish government's new shared island unit? And I suppose what next steps are required from the Irish government? So I welcome the fact that it's established um, and, and I want it to be really, uh, I want the Irish government to build upon it. Um, I think we need a citizens assembly. Uh, we need to have you just prompted my next question <laughs> go, on, go ahead <laughs> well we do need a citizens assembly we need we need the public at large you look at how particularly in Irish society how um, opinions changed people went into the room of a citizens assembly particularly around marriage equality mm-hmm. women's reproductive rights mm-hmm. walked into the room with, with one perspective and after the process of conversation and debate came out with another perspective we can do the same thing around Irish unity mm-hmm. and, and I think that sometimes the public can be way ahead of the politicians and I, I certainly would love us to see get to the point and I would encourage the Citizens' Assembly to happen ASAP. It's interesting what you said there. Sometimes the public can be way ahead of politicians. I'm not a politician, don't want to be. But, at, you know, I can understand a lot of politicians that they're kind of handcuffed and personally they would want to go a lot further than their maybe party allows them to. And that's all political parties, mm-hmm. by the way. And, and you're right, I think for me that's the beauty about a Citizens' Assembly, mm-hmm. is that they don't have that restrictive nature on them. They can be honest in their assessment, they can go and do research, yeah. provide it without a jaundiced approach, potentially. And when them facts and figures are laid out for our political mm-hmm. parties then to, I suppose, go through, they can make an informed decision based upon an independent, nearly, findings coming from the Citizens' Assembly. And I just simply don't see why anybody has anything to fear. No, there's nothing to fear, sure. I mean, it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a conversation. It's a healthy conversation. Yeah. And it's exploration of what could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and politics has to respond to the people. Well, so if the people's demand, just like there was with marriage equality or with women's reproductive rights with the appeal campaign, um, the politicians responded in, ki- in kind to the, to the public at large. So let's have this conversation. This is now the time to have the conversation. The conversation wasn't had around Brexit. Yeah. And then people made a decision, perhaps not having all the facts or quite often when they were given the wrong information. So let the, let the people debate this out. Let's do the research. Let's do our homework. And that's build something better. Right, well, I'm going to put an onus on you here. Joint Force <laughs> Minister Michelle, why is this not happening? The Citizens' Assembly? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, certainly I'm up for that. I mean, obviously, everything. How do you make it happen? But the, if but I think the Irish, there's an onus on the Irish government to plan. Of course. So the Irish government must convene a citizens' assembly uh, and, and make it an inclusive conversation and invite, you know, the, the power of the invitation, invite everybody in. Um, and I'd certainly, I think that's the way we should, that's the way, because there's, it's incumbent upon them to plan. I mean, this is, this is all going in one direction. I, I, st- I said earlier about it's the when, not, not if. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in recognition of that fact, 
then let's start the planning now because it's going to take some time. Do you think the Irish government will, from your private conversations behind the scenes or public, that that this is in their immediate radar? Well, they've, they've moved from doing nothing to the shared island unit. Um, I would hope that that would be where, the, if they're going to respond to where the public are, then mm. yes, this is the next natural step. I think people should raise their voices and ask for it. Um, for me, it was so significant, uh, the Clare Bourne show. Like when before, as an Irish citizen, have I ever heard um, RTE, national broadcaster, having an hour-long dedicated programme to our future? And that wasn't lost on the public at large, I think. That's the, the, the most, I suppose, yeah, but I think frequently it, commented thing. The people said, imagine RTE were the, having the, the debate. On the people behind the Irish government. That's my fear. Oh, well, yes. But the only way then they'll, they'll change their mind is that if the public ask for it and hmm. um, people raise their voices. And um, platforms like your own uh, and all the other initiatives that are out there now um, encouraging the conversation can't be ignored or swept away. Hopefully not. We'll <laughs> keep trying. Michelle, describe your vision. Of a new shared Ireland? Very simple question for you, isn't it? Yeah, very simple. <laughs> <laughs> it's an inclusive Ireland. It's one where we live um, comfortably beside each other. It's one where uh, every young person has a job. People have a house. People have a roof over their head. People have a few pounds in their pocket. Um, people have access to a health service um, freely and they're not waiting on these huge waiting lists. Um, it's it's the simple things. It's the things that we all want in our lives. Um, and it's just the, the, my ambition for something better than what we currently have and and everything you said there and i know you could go on for hours about that question but like they're all things that people from any persuasion would want i assume yes. any right-minded thinking person anyway so whenever you're trying to reach an agreement you should have, always have to find your common ground mm -hmm. so let's start with things that we can share exactly and then build our way out and deal with the the more difficult i think we've cracked this case you think so I think <laughs> the way you put that there finding common ground and Finding ways of sharing, well, there you go. Yeah. Problem solved, I think. I, well, hopefully, I hope it's that easy. <laughs> Very good. But common ground is so important, and we do have so much common. There's more that, that unites us than divides us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, certainly. Are you open-minded, Michelle, about a new national flag, potentially, and a new anthem, in order to facilitate different traditions? Now, I know this conversation isn't meant to be a serious detailed one now because obviously we're a long way off that there's certainly more uh, things that need to be discussed like health and education infrastructure fund and stuff before things i guess have to be talked about but these two things a national anthem and a flag they're so contentious for for obviously a host of different reasons but uh, so that's the only reason why i'm picking these two out what is your opinion on them two subjects so I've always said that um, that you have to go to the table with an open mind. Um, I bring my perspective and I expect others to bring theirs. I'd make the case that the tricolour represents, you know, the green and the orange. You could say that, that that's... that's It's a perfect flag for our country. That, that, that's, that's the perspective that I would mm -hmm. bring. But I equally accept that others will bring a different perspective. And I think, you see, if we start on the, in symbols and emblems... Mm. I think that's where we'll get stuck. Oh, no, I agree. So back to the previous, we were just talking about the common ground. I agree. Uh, but but, but um, so find the common ground and then let's deal with the more difficult mm, things. Yeah. Um, but certainly I bring my perspective around that. I know others will bring a different perspective, but I'm very open about having the, the conversation and the debate about it. Neil Richmond, okay, we, we mentioned him um, earlier there, uh, Fine Gael. Mm -hmm. um, on a podcast with him last year, and now Neil is very vocal, yeah. As, as we all know at the moment, yeah. about a new shared Ireland. That's what he wants. But when I discussed this subject with him about flags and anthems, he said his vision 
from from a southern Protestant's perspective mm-hmm. was the trickler, his national flag being seen draped across Republicans' coffins mm-hmm. years gone by. And and he said for him and many in his community that conjured up the wrong image. So basically he was saying, and I uh, and I shouldn't misquote him here, but roughly uh, is that he would certainly be up for changing changing it because from his perspective and his neighbours and his constituency, he can see how it has been potentially divisive in the past. Mm-hmm. But again, it's having these conversations and the hearing perspectives they get that gives us all the ability to try and maybe walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And that's that's very important always, isn't it? That you have to listen to what other people are saying. So mm. I'd be more than happy to engage Neil on his perspective and offer mine and then let's have the conversation. Like that's that's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna resolve all these things. Just having the, the confidence of, with our own beliefs and our own views to have the conversation and then find an agreed way forward. So I suppose to sum up your answer on that, would it be fair to say that um, you will go to the table with obviously your own agenda, but you are very open and willing to listen to all opinions? Of, of course, yeah. We, we'll not be successful if we don't have the ability to listen and hear each other. Okay. Michelle, for our unionist listeners, um, and we do have many, even though they won't uh, uh, publicly admit it. Can you reassure them that their Britishness, their culture, their heritage, and I suppose way of life will be cherished and respected in our new shared Ireland when it does happen? All day, every day. I would never set out to diminish anybody's identity, anybody's Britishness. And I actually think, again, the opportunity for us actually to ensure that um, people's identity is cherished in a new and a great Ireland has to be up there as one of our priorities. Um, I think that there are inbuilt protections in the Good Friday Agreement that you know looks at people's identity. That continues. The Good Friday Agreement doesn't cease to exist. Mm-hmm. So there's continuity of protection for identity. So a new shared Ireland happens just for the sake of it tomorrow. Principles of the Good Friday Agreement will be enshrined in our new dispensation moving forward. Yes, they, they stand. They don't fall. It's an international agreement. Mm-hmm. And I certainly and our party would, would always live up to that. But even more so, just on a general principle, um, I want to ensure that Irish identity, British identity, live side by side and actually maybe in a more comfortable situation than what than when we are currently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Michelle, um, we are 35 minutes in here and I appreciate you are a busy person. So um, I'll try not to keep you much longer. Are we not polarising society, Michelle, and in particular our next generation, by segregating them at such an early age with schooling? And I suppose, is integrated schooling potentially not the way forward to break down these barriers? Not for us, because we're too long in the tooth, maybe, but for <laughs> our children and grandchildren. It's never too late to go back to school now. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 um, I think integrated education has a role. Um, I think parental choice is always important, but I do think it certainly has a role. I think we have to find ways to <laughs> ensure that our young people are able to to, to be in shared, envir- shared environments um, more and more. Um, but sometimes I, I hear people think or make the case that integrated education is the is the solution. Mm. I don't think it's the solution, mm-hmm. but I think it's part of um, ensuring that our children are more um, are, are more sharing more time together and actually understand each other. Um, Re- recently, um, Reverend David Latimer, um, good friend of the late Martin McGuinness, as I'm sure you know, um, he said something very interesting. He says, you know, we're trying to build a new shared Ireland, um, but we send our children to schools, different schools. They come home, live in different communities. And how can that be 
conducive to, I suppose, putting it into our younger generation, putting it into their mindset that, you know, it's nearly we are deliberately polarizing them before they have got a, a choice to make their own minds up in life. You know, and, and, and the more that I think about it, like, you know, my mother was an ex-Catholic primary school teacher. She taught me, so it's my fault, or it's her fault, sorry, why, why I'm the person I am today. It's always good to blame somebody. But, um, you know, and the more I thought about it, I have a lot of respect for, um, you know, the Catholic um, education system. But it's true, you know, we, we didn't mix with anybody. I'm sure you were the same. Um, it was our choice to do it after school. But, for, you know, again, I, I think there, we're missing an opportunity here to be creative. But as I said earlier, I think that um, our education system is a direct uh, result of partition. I also think the segregation and, and the kind of division in our society, again, comes from the formation of the northern state, inbuilt discrimination. Um, people were you know, forced into, I suppose, their corner, mm. uh, maybe if that's the way to describe it. Um, there's been many attempts to try and build a more shared and equal society. But we have big challenges in our hands. We have big challenges in our hands on tackling sectarianism. We have big challenges in our hands whenever it comes to trying to create shared housing opportunity. Um, you know, where people are, you know, living together side by side. And that's why I think that, you know, the, the North is such a special and unique um situation that I think has failed us all in many, many ways, whether you know, no matter what you look at, where it's you know, the segregation that exists, the sectarianism that exists, the separate housing the, the, all of that um, so there's a chance for us to do something better and that's where I think you know where we talk about unity and a new and agreed Ireland and the opportunities that we have we have to grab all those opportunities with both hands and try to make this better just to put this subject to bed would you have any issue with taking religion out of education no I think we should have a secular education system um, unfortunately, as I said, our education system is a result of partition. Um, but yes, in an ideal world, if you were starting from scratch right now, of course, you would do that. Okay. Um, Michelle, I'm sure you would agree. It's a sad indictment on society that our suicide rate is greater since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement than all the deaths during the conflict. I'm aware that the executive has appointed a mental health ambassador. But surely nothing should be more important than the welfare of our youth and people in general. Um, what more needs to be done here? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's so sad um, to see the number of, of people, young people in particular, who, who um, die by suicide. And you're right, the executive has prioritised this insofar as we've appointed the mental health um, champion in Siobhan O'Neill and she is doing mm -hmm. amazing work. She's a fantastic advocate. But mental health... Um, is a societal issue and something that we need because you know people get mental health gets impacted when they don't have job they don't you know mm -hmm. they don't have an income they're maybe in debt you know they're having relationship problems you know there's a whole raft of things that but, but Michelle, it, it is unfortunately nearly i don't know what the right word is unique to the north here our figures outweigh any for per head of population on the size of who we are like that's it, far outstrips it, anybody else. It, I, I, no doubt, and also our investment is not where it should be. You know, in terms of when you look at, um, if somebody has a broken arm, they can get fixed. Where mm. their mental health list waiting lists now are, are atrocious as well. Mm. When young people need referred into the mental health services, the waiting list families are at, the, at their wit's end. So we need to address the funding imbalance around physical health and, and mental health. Um, we need to do all that we can. It's a societal issue. 
and we need to tackle it across society, across deep departments, because everybody has a part to play. Mm -hmm. um, we just have to keep working really hard. And I do think we've got a, there's an intergenerational trauma where mm -hmm. society come out of conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think that whilst we've made enormous strides in the last 23 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, you need to recognise that that intergenerational impact of society, conflict and everything that comes after it, I think that is still what's being felt um, in our among our people today. For for me, honestly, uh, I know we spoke about education and money and funding and I suppose the health thing and, you know, health isn't just a physical thing for me. Health is, you know, the, the mental health aspect. Of it. And for me, there is no other singular important thing mm. um, now or moving forward. And I suppose that's the reason why um, from time to time we would bring it up here and it's something that I believe we need to focus more on because again what's the point in us creating a new shared Ireland if our youth and members of society are actively taking their own lives yeah why yeah. why is this happening yeah and unfortunately there isn't one single answer to it no. unfortunately but it does take a holistic approach and um, it does take everybody working together there's no doubt in my mind but you're right it is it is one of the mm. um, biggest issues that we have to face as a society right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, Michelle, getting to the part of the podcast that everybody um, hates. Who's your inspiration in life? Um, I've got plenty of people that inspire me, to be honest, or who have inspired me. Um, close to home, my own family, mm -hmm. my own grannies, my own mummy, um, are my biggest inspiration. My, my father, um, politically, Martin McGuinness was always my mentor. Um, so goodness I, I I'm inspired by lots of people actually every day mm -hmm. I'm inspired I just never fail to be impressed by people and their goodness and and for many different reasons you know I'm sure you equally inspire a lot of people as well. well I hope so we can only hope for that Michelle invite three people live or dead to your fictional dinner party and why <laughs> there you go now oh, nice goodness. easy one for you Covid times we're not allowed to have dinner parties <laughs> <laughs> Um, who would I have? Uh, well, my daddy is dead 15 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'd love to have, of course, obviously, um, love to have him for dinner. Yes. Um, I would love to have Tag Hickey for dinner. He is <laughs> fantastic. I, I love to see his latest posts can, on can, social media. Just funny you mentioned Tag. <laughs> um, we did a podcast with Tag um, a couple of months ago. And he um he is wants to come up to the north as he calls it, be the mm -hmm. Corkman. And he wants to speak to yourself and he wants to speak to Arlene or Edwin. Mm -hmm. and he wants to speak to different people from a unionist tradition. And um because he gets a lot of shit, I suppose. Yeah. For for a satire. Yeah. It seems to be from a certain tradition all aimed towards them. But um, I thought it was a great offer, you know, you'd like to come up and not do nothing funny, but you know, take it serious. But um Using humour was the way he put it, can be a great medicine. It is, it is powerful. Yeah. It is powerful. You can get project a message so much more with what he does, I mm. think. Um so I, I, I have to say I love love his stuff. I think he's fantastic. Well, and I'd be well, more I'm, than happy to well, I pass him on your details. Hundred percent from a from a cork woman to the cork man, tell him he's more than welcome. That's true. Uh, that's true. I thought that was played out, that's why I didn't mention it at the start, but you were born in County Cork. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that's a very good point uh, to Cork people there. <laughs> okay, you've one more um, uh, um, invite. So that's your dad, 
Tag Hecky. Why not Kamala Harris? Because you know she's new into her vice presidency, and she's quite impressive. So yeah, I had a good engagement with her on um, St Patrick's uh, weekend, and she's very impressive, and I'm Mm -hmm. looking forward to to meeting with her. I think we're all very interested in the new administration in America and see. um, uh, I think it's a fair assessment, again, regardless of what way you stand on the whole Irish thing, is that Mr. Trump didn't, um, he seemed to just forget about us, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think they're, this administration are clearly interested in protection of the Good Friday Agreement and mm-hmm. have sent very powerful messages to, mm-hmm. uh, well, for the British government to hear that uh, yeah. they're not going to get away with running roughshod over the Good Friday Agreement. and. I think, you know, when you think about what Britain want post-Brexit and they want a trade deal with the United States, then, you know, the United States are making it very clear, this administration is making it very clear that they must adhere to and and live up to their commitments around the Good Friday Agreement. So that's very welcome. Very good. Michelle O'Neill, um, Joint Force Minister. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving up your time today. Oh, can I make just a public um, request of you here? Uh, any chance of getting Mary Lou on the podcast sometime? <laughs> I will tell her that you're looking her. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I would ask that on record, you see. <laughs> Very good. Michelle, thanks for your time today. Um, folks, if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, don't forget to retweet it. And of course, as always, we welcome your comments underneath. Take care. Be good. Bye. Bye.